Let's pray together. Father, thank you that whenever we open the Bible, the book that you've written, you are speaking. Father, thank you that in this moment, no matter what our week has been like, no matter what our morning has been like, whether we come here excited or sad, discouraged, hopeful, believing or doubting, you are here and as your word is open, you're speaking. Would you, Father, speak to us? Prepare our hearts for this moment to hear from you, the living God. Father, we pray that you'll lift up Jesus Christ during this time, that all of our eyes would be fixed on him. Do what only you can do in our hearts now through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning, we are finishing our journey through the Old Testament book of Haggai. And if you're just joining us for the first time, Haggai is all about first things first. It's all about keeping the main thing the main thing. And for Haggai, the main thing is rebuilding God's house, the temple. Now, to understand why Haggai so desperately wants God's people to rebuild God's house, we have to remember that in the Bible, the temple is where God's presence dwells with God's people. It's where God's presence dwells with God's people. See, far more than a structure, the temple was for Old Testament Israel, the very center of their worship, their community, and their mission. The very same things we emphasize here at City Light. Now, at the time that Haggai wrote, the temple was in ruins. In 586 B.C., The Babylonians invade Jerusalem, they conquer the city, they exile the people, and they destroy the temple. But then in 536 BC, the exiles are permitted to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple. And the temple rebuild project begins quite well, but then opposition arises, and the people give up building God's house And they get busy building their own houses. And Haggai calls them back to the temple project. But don't forget the significance of what Haggai is calling them to. The temple is where God's presence dwells with God's people. A decaying temple symbolizes a decaying relationship with God. And so Haggai's calling them to so much more than building a structure. He's calling them back to God himself to put God first in their lives because wherever God is second, God is rejected. And so he calls them to build God's house. Now, let's just pause for a moment and remember how we as followers of Jesus build the temple today. See, we don't construct literal temples. We build the temple first and foremost by coming to Jesus, who is the true temple. Jesus is God's presence with us. He is where God and humanity can meet and have peace through his life, death, and resurrection. So we build the temple by coming to Jesus in faith for forgiveness of sins, and then by obeying Jesus' command to give ourselves to God in worship, 
to one another in community, and to our neighbors in mission and in love. So that's how we today build the temple. Now, let's get back to Haggai's day. Amazingly, the people receive Haggai's call to build God's house as the very word of God. And they tremble before God's word, and they obey it. They go up to the hills, they bring wood, and they begin to rebuild God's house. But in the final passage that we're going to see this morning, the people are about three months into the building project. And as you can imagine, they are growing weary. They're growing weary in God-centered living. And so the last message from God to these people is a message of blessing. It's a message of encouragement. We see the message of blessing in Haggai 2, verse 19. The Lord says, but from this day on, I will bless you. See, the big idea of our passage this morning, the final passage in Haggai, is that God blesses obedient builders. See, God looks at these people who are now seeking first his kingdom, but they're doing it imperfectly, and they're a bit weary in it, and he looks at them and says, in the midst of your weariness, I will bless obedient builders. I will bless obedient builders. Now, how does he do it? Well, in our passage, we'll see that God blesses obedient builders by fixing their eyes on three things. The past, the present, and the future. We'll begin with the past. God blesses obedient builders first by reminding them of past fruitlessness. Past fruitlessness. Let's read beginning in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, so about three months into their work, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or any kind of food, does it become holy? So, you know, the very questions you came in here asking yourself this morning. And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, well, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, they are unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, so before they started the rebuild project, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there was but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. 
Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. What in the world are they talking about? Well, the main thing that Haggai is trying to get them to do, we see it repeated, is to consider. He's asking them to remember the past. He's asking them to remember the past, to consider the past. And the way he gets them to consider the past is by providing them with an analogy that would have made perfect sense to them, but unfortunately makes no sense to us. And it's an analogy about Old Testament food cleanliness laws, about cleanliness laws. Now, in the Old Testament, there are really three designations for something as far as cleanliness goes. There was holy, then there was clean and unclean. Holy, or excuse me, holy, common, and unclean. And each level denoted a sort of different level of access to God. So, for example, things that were holy, those were set apart for God's exclusive use in the temple. Those are things like priests or instruments that were set apart for worship. Then things that were common that were not condemned, but they couldn't enjoy the same kind of access to God. They couldn't draw as near. And then things that were unclean were to be removed from God's presence. Now here's the analogy. Here's what Haggai's getting at. He's saying something that's holy if it touches something that's unclean, that holy thing becomes unclean. But if something, so if something holy touches something unclean, the holy thing becomes unclean. But if something unclean touches something holy, well, that holy thing becomes blemished as well. And now, I know this is a bit nebulous, but think about it this way. If you took a cup of water from the Schuylkill River, Okay, now, we're talking unclean water here. I, I, I once did a triathlon in the, and the swim portion was in the Schuylkill River. Just take it from me. You need not do that in your life. Okay, so if you, if you take, let's say you take first a pure cup of water and pour it in the Schuylkill River, does the Schuylkill River become clean? No, it doesn't. But if you take unclean water from the Schuylkill River and pour it into like a, a vat of clean water, does that unclean water remain clean? No, it becomes defiled. Now, what's Haggai's point? His point is, that's exactly what you were like before you started rebuilding the temple. He's saying, that rotting temple, that unbuilt temple, that was like a decaying, unclean corpse in your midst. And it was making everyone in the community unclean. He's saying because you refused to rebuild God's house, everything you did, everything you touched became unclean because you were unclean. Because you refused to obey the Lord and to put him first, you were unclean and everything you touched became unclean. Everything they touched and you notice in verse 14, it talks about both what they offered, that's religion, offering sacrifices, and their work. You see, even their religion became unclean because they were, they were making offerings. They were seeking blessing while ignoring the blesser. They were religious while avoiding a relationship with God. They wanted blessing without obeying the blesser. 
And Haggai says, you were unclean. That was unacceptable, everything you touched. And then in the same way, he says, even your crops didn't yield because you are not in right relationship with God, so even your work is defiled. What's really going on here, one of our uh, City Light interns put this aptly, uh, they wanted God as a friend with benefits while refusing God as their husband. And so everything they touched became unclean as they were unclean. That's Haggai's point. But what did he ask them to do? Remember what that was like. He says, I want you to remember what that was like back then. He wants them to remember how terrible it was. Now, why does he, why does he want them to remember? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. Before we do, let's, let's make this personal for us. Two questions to try and make this personal before we answer the question, why does he want them to remember the past? Why does he want us to remember the past? First question. How do you see your present in these people's past? These people were going through religious motions while remaining relationally distant from God. Do you see yourself in that? These people were seeking blessing from God all the while ignoring the commands of God. Do you see yourself in that? These people were trying to make themselves clean and acceptable by their own effort. Do you see yourself in that? These people we were, I guess the right way of saying it would be they were ignoring a relationship with God for more pressing matters. Do you, do you see yourself in their past? Second question. How do you see your past in their past? Do you remember, Haggai wants us to remember, do you remember what it was like, those of you who are followers of Jesus, before you knew him? Do you remember what it was like before you knew that though your sins were infinite, God's grace was even greater? Do you remember what it was like before you knew that the God who created the universe would actually be your father through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ? He's saying, do you remember what that was like so he says to those of us in the present, he says, how's that going for you? You know, religion without a relationship with God through Christ. And he says, do you remember what it was like in the past? Now, why? Why does he want them to remember the past? I think the simple answer is so that they won't go back to it. So that they won't go back to it. You see, they're living a God-centered life. 
They've repented of their sin. They've turned back to God. He is number one. They are, in the terms of the New Testament, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And sometimes a God-centered life can be exhausting. It can be wearying. I know sometimes many of you have probably had a preacher who's oversold you on this. They say, you know, if you follow Jesus, you'll be healthy, wealthy, successful. All will go well for you. Now you're living the Christian life. You're like, who's lying? They were. It can be exhausting to seek first the kingdom of God. And when we're exhausted, we are tempted to look at our past before we walked with God and remember it wrongly. We're tempted to look back and go, gosh, wasn't that amazing? Before I had any responsibilities, before I had the commands of God, I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. That was amazing. And we forget, actually, I was totally insecure. I was separated from God. I was searching and didn't know what I was looking for. And he came and he found me and he gave his son for me. We forget what that past was like. And so Haggai is saying, remember the past rightly so you won't go back to it. My friends, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you have been freed from the jail cell of your sin. You have been freed from eternal condemnation. You've been brought out of that cell into the light. And yes, when you get weary, you will be tempted to remember that cell as though it was the dang Ritz-Carlton. It wasn't that bad. Let me tell you, when you were separated from God in your sins, destined for eternal condemnation, it was so much worse than you even remember. And Haggai says, remember that so that you won't go back. God blesses obedient builders by reminding them of past fruitlessness. I know pop culture says, live in the moment, never look back, no regrets. And there's a sense that that's true and biblical. But there's another sense in which Haggai's saying, no, 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 you remember the past so that you will be encouraged to persevere in the present. God blesses obedient builders first by reminding them of past fruitlessness. Do you remember? Then secondly, God blesses obedient builders with present fruit. So he takes their eyes from the past to the present in verse 18. He says, consider from this day onward. Okay, so now that you have started rebuilding the temple again. From the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? So the answer was no, they haven't harvested these crops just yet. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. He's looking at these weary yet obedient builders. And he is saying, your life, no matter how exhausted you are in seeking first the kingdom, is so much better than it was in the past. You were under God's curse. Now Jesus has taken your curse. Now you're under his blessing. Now what is the blessing? You know, it's like, is it like some churches say, hey, you know, follow Jesus, you'll be blessed, you'll get a Bentley. Uh, No, it's not. In fact, I haven't seen any of you driving them yet. No, what's the blessing? 
The blessing in this passage and it is the same as it is today, fruit. Fruit. He promises them, I'm going to bless you. You see, their crops were not doing well. Their crops were not doing well because God was disciplining them to get their attention. But when they turn back to the Lord, the Lord says, I'm going to bless you with fruit. In the same way, when we come to faith in Jesus, when we repent of our sin and trust in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, we get indwelt by the Holy Spirit who promises to produce the fruit of godly character in us. The Holy Spirit is at work in you right now, even if you don't feel it, as a follower of Jesus to produce his fruit, to make you more loving, joyous, patient, peaceful, kind, generous, self-controlled. You are growing in godliness. You are being conformed to Jesus' likeness and communing with him more deeply because that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in you whether you feel it right this moment or not. God blesses obedient builders by promising them, I'm with you, I will bless you. Now, why do we need to know that? Well, because it is so natural and so easy to grow discouraged as we seek to grow in godliness. I mean, let me just ask you, right now, in this season, how are you tempted to grow discouraged as you're seeking to build God's house? as you're seeking to grow in worship, community, and mission, how are you tempted to get discouraged? You know, maybe some of you, as a result of this series, you decided, I'm gonna pursue worship like I never have before. You know, maybe you're like, I wanna put to death this particular sin that I've just been giving into, or I'm, I'm gonna pursue worship by spending time with God daily in his word and talking with him, and already you're discouraged that that sin keeps chasing you or maybe you're still a little inconsistent. You're discouraged. Maybe for some of you, you're discouraged in the area of community, where you say, you know what? I'm gonna pursue being devoted to the people at City Light with all of who I am. Like, I'm gonna go to the men's retreat. I'm gonna get involved in a city group. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and get close with these people, and there's a big gap between the community maybe you long for and the reality of what you're experiencing right now, and you're tempted like them to get discouraged and give up. See, there's no progress being made. Maybe it's in the area of mission where you've said, I, I really want to grow in speaking about God's love to my friends, neighbors, coworkers, and you're discouraged by how little you're growing in boldness. I mean, I, I know what that feels like. Throughout this series, I've felt like the Lord encouraging me to love my closest neighbor better, my wife, to love her better. And I'm just shocked by how quickly I get discouraged by my slow progress. I mean, it doesn't help that we often grow discouraged by comparing ourselves to others, right? And so, like, I get discouraged. I, I open up Instagram and see the Instagram super marriage. You know this one, like, there's a wife talking about her husband. It's a picture of her husband. He's 6'4", nothing but muscle. You know, it's like, and by the way, uh, you can't trust that man. If he's over 6'4", his, his life has been too easy. Okay, so, you know, you, you, you open this up, 
And you read and say, my husband, I just thank God for him. Like, he wakes every morning at 4.15 a.m. And he catechizes the children. And then he gently wakes me up with breakfast. And we read scripture together and have a wonderful time of prayer. Then he goes off to work and he makes six figures. And then he comes home and he takes responsibility for everything going wrong in the home. He puts the children to bed. And what happens after the children go to bed? Well, we can't even speak of that, but it is wonderful. And you, know, and you just read this and you go, why do I even try? And by the way, ladies, I'm not trying to discourage you from bragging on your husbands through Instagram. I'm, it, clearly, you, that post was not about me. I'm making it about me and my selfishness and getting discouraged. Don't you take that as a mean, reason to stop. But we just get so easily discouraged. And God's word to obedient builders who are growing weary and discouraged in seeking first the kingdom is this. I will bless you. The Spirit is within you, propelling you and conforming you to the likeness of Jesus all the time, whether you feel it or not, do not grow discouraged. Keep building because he is blessing. Now finally, God blesses obedient builders. Yes, the past, the present, but ultimately, God blesses obedient builders with an unshakable future an unshakable future. We begin in verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now this is significant right away because almost all, every other time it said speak, it was Zerubbabel and then it was Joshua and to all the people. But this is just for Zerubbabel. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. There's some astonishing promises made to Zerubbabel. He's promising Zerubbabel that, he's gonna, that the Lord's going to overthrow, he's going to shake heaven and earth, overthrow kingdoms, and he's going to make Zerubbabel a great king who wears a signet ring. The signet ring signified divine kingly authority. He's saying, Zerubbabel, you are going to be a king who rules over nations. Now, of course, the only problem is that that never happens to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was nothing more than a puppet governor, and he dies before he rules over anything. But we read... In Matthew chapter 1, that Zerubbabel 
was just one man in a line of unknown men that led to a man named Joseph who birthed the Davidic line to a son named Jesus. You see, it's the Lord Jesus who is the fulfillment of all these promises made to Zerubbabel. Jesus is the true and greater Zerubbabel. You want to talk about a signet ring? Jesus is the very image of the invisible God, the firstborn among many brothers who wears the signet ring as the royal king. He is the image. He is the signet ring of the invisible God. In addition, Jesus is the king who can cleanse the unacceptable. Remember, we said that when a holy thing touches an unclean thing, that holy thing becomes unclean? Not so with Jesus. He is the holy one who all throughout his ministry touched the unclean and never became unclean. Instead, he made others well. You see, through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus washes the unclean and the unacceptable like you and me in his blood. And he is a king who ushers us unacceptable sinners into his kingdom. And he is the one who shakes the heavens and the earth. Jesus shook the heavens and the earth at the cross. You remember the sun grew or the sky grew dark and the earth quaked. Because the kingdoms of Satan, sin, and death were overthrown at the cross and the dividing wall between God and humanity in the temple was torn down and sinners like us have been given access to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is coming one day to shake every kingdom and every power and to establish his throne and his kingdom for Ever, and it is the one kingdom that will never be shaken. Jesus is the true and greater Zerubbabel who says to sinners like you and me, I will welcome you into my unshakable eternal kingdom by my blood, not by your might. So how should we respond to Jesus the King who ushers the unclean into his eternally pure kingdom by his blood. How should we respond to him? As we close, just three ways we can respond to Jesus, the true king. One is to put your faith in Christ for the first time. Maybe you're here today and you can really identify with the people in Haggai's day. You've been religious your whole life, but have never embraced a relationship with God through Christ. You've been relying on what you can do to make yourself clean, not what Christ has done to cleanse you. And today you can come to God in faith through Jesus Christ. You can say to Jesus, I, Jesus, I believe I deserve to be condemned for my sins, but you were condemned in my place. Would you forgive me and usher me into a life of seeking your kingdom forever? If that's you today, if you want to take that step, would you let us know what's going on on your Connect card so we can email you tomorrow? 
And if you are someone who has become a follower of Jesus, you've been ushered into the kingdom because your hope is in the blood of Christ alone, we're gonna celebrate that in a moment through communion. There are communion tables in front and in back. Anytime during the next three songs, I wanna invite you to come, tear off a piece of bread. It's a symbol of Jesus' body that was broken for you. Dip it in the cup. It's a symbol of his blood shed. Eat it and remember, I have an unshakable kingdom that awaits because I am holding to Christ who is shaken to the point of death on my behalf. Second way we can respond, I wanna encourage us to be a people who seek first this unshakable kingdom. Let's be a people who in everything we do are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Who say, with my career, in my family, with my time and my priorities, with my money and my sexuality and every detail of my life, I want to make much of Jesus and his kingdom, not me and my little kingdom. Let's seek first his kingdom. Let's devote ourselves to worship, community, and mission because Jesus was devoted to death for us. And the final thing I want to encourage us with in response By the way, the way that we really seek an unshakable kingdom, seek that future unshakable kingdom, is through praise. Praise is what we offer because we can't build a kingdom, we've been given it, so we just worship. And that's what we'll do in a few moments. But a final way I want to encourage us to respond, since through the blood of Christ, we have an unshakable future kingdom, let's be a church that groans for the future instead of grumbling in the present. You know, Romans 8 says that in this body and life, we are gonna experience trials, but we groan for the future. We look forward to it. We long for it. We pray, Jesus, your kingdom come. Your will be done. We look forward to to the day when the fight with sin will be over, when our weak bodies will be renewed, where everything sad will become untrue. Let's groan for that future with longing and joy rather than grumbling in the present. There is a huge difference between groaning and grumbling. Let's be a joyously groaning people, not a despairing grumbling people. Because we have an unshakable king and an unshakable kingdom that we are part of, not by anything we can do, but by the finished work of what Christ has done. So let's praise him together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for Jesus Christ. Through him you have shaken the heavens and the earth and given us access to you by faith. And through him you will one day shake every kingdom and usher us into the eternal kingdom where Christ reigns as Lord forever. Would you make us a people that seek first, therefore, the kingdom of God, and his righteousness. And now we come to you in praise because you are the one, Father, who has given us this unshakable kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.